Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to, if you can believe it, our third annual holiday Q&A. We received so many questions today, so many, that there's no way we could get to every single one of them. So what we've done is we've lumped a bunch of them into key topics, key issues that were popping up in the various questions. In a couple, you may recognize your specific question. Others, you may get a hint or a flavor of the question that you had. <clears throat> Excuse me. In some cases, we obviously have had to change the facts. We have to make sure that we're not giving specific legal advice on a webinar because, of course, nobody can rely on advice from a webinar under Section 37 of the Act. You have to make sure you get a specific written legal opinion. But we're doing our best to try and impart some information on the key questions that we received, and we're looking really forward to doing so today. So again, we're going to start off with one of our uh, key individuals in our litigation team and also taking care of a lot of governance issues and on the governance issues melissa or i think you're going to be talking about oh sorry not governance issues but uh problem issues you're going to be talking about noise and maybe some strs a couple of those fun hot topics yeah that's right all right turning it over to you thanks nancy so um the first question i have is with respect to noise so the scenario is that this owner lives in a townhouse condominium there's lots of children in the community they're playing on the property and the roadways sounds normal enough but the often these kids are yelling at the top of their lungs to an extent that sometimes this owner is concerned is someone in danger what's happening with the kids then it's causing this owner's dog to start barking and it turns into a whole scenario. So um, the question, and we get this question a lot, is are other residents allowed to, to interfere with this owner's quiet enjoyment of the property? And the response here, generally we know that no, the answer is no, you can't be interfering with other residents' uh, the quiet enjoyment of the property of other residents. But the difficulty is always in assessing what is considered interference. And so the standard in noise issues is always reasonableness. So we're not talking here about um, what is a reasonable amount of noise when I live in a single family home on 10 acres in the country where I can't see my neighbors. What we're talking about is assessing what a reasonable amount of noise is when I live in a condominium in close proximity to other owners, some of whom have children, and what is reasonable, um, what's a reasonable amount of noise in that situation. So without having heard the noise, obviously, it's hard to say. Generally, I would say that kids playing and dogs barking are going to be considered reasonable, particularly if that noise is happening during the day when we know there's a lower expectation of quiet. Um, but these assessments are always tricky and they really turn on two things. They, they turn on the facts and objectivity. So in terms of the facts, if we're dealing with a situation where these kids are actually lighting off firecrackers all day long and, um, you know, the noise is scaring pets or we've got someone who's sensitive to loud noises for various reasons. That's a different story on the facts. Um, in terms of objectivity, the difficulty with these noise issues is that um, noise is a very subjective problem to be dealing with. And so what bothers one person might not necessarily bother another person. So the question is always, are we dealing with an objectively unreasonable noise or not? Um, and, and depending on your assessment of that, that's gonna how you're that's how you're gonna respond to the problem. But my recommendation in these situations 
there's a couple of things. If you're the owner that's got this complaint and on the receiving end of this noise, you can have a neighbor or a family member come over, help you assess, you know, is this really something that's unreasonable? If you're getting feedback that this is not necessarily unreasonable, there's things you can do to drown out the noise, that background noise. So there's specific noise machines that help with um, drowning out bothersome noises. You can have the TV or the radio on in the background. If you're the manager that's faced with this type of complaint, you can have um, another board member or someone, a site um, staff person attend at the unit when the noise is happening to try and assess what's really going on there and then go from there. So that is, um, those are my comments on the noise question. The second question that I have is about short-term leases. Um, so the question specifically is, given that our declaration states that units shall only be used as single family residences, should we pass a rule respecting the use of units? And do we need to register with the city under this new bylaw that regulates short term rentals? The quick answer to both is yes. The gold standard would, would be to do both of those um, steps. So the reason why you want a rule is because the courts have defined um, family, when we're talking about a single family residence, very narrowly. Basically, the definition is a social unit of parents and their children that may include other relatives. So if you have an arrangement that's occupying a unit that is different than that definition and you don't have a rule, then technically that occupancy arrangement is not compliant. So, you, so we pass rules in these situations and it's a bit... Um, it's a bit funny to wrap your head around, but we pass a rule on these situations to actually expand the definition of family. So expand on that narrow definition that the court has given us. And in doing so, we can also include language in that rule to prohibit short-term leases. The reason why um, expanding this definition is important, it sounds a bit technical, but sometimes when you get these Airbnbers, they can be sophisticated parties that are doing it all over the city in various various buildings. And when you go to take action against them, the first thing they're going to say to you is, well, actually, you've got a number of other units in this uh, property that don't comply with that definition of family in your declaration either. So you, you can't take action against me because you haven't taken action to enforce your declaration against anyone else in this community. So if you pass a rule that expands that definition of family, it makes it easier for you as the condominium to say, well, no, those other units are compliant with these um, expanded definitions of family. And this rule also prohibits against short-term rentals. Um, the other point about passing a rule, rules can be helpful for owners because people in the industry, we understand what this definition of family means um, in the declaration, but often owners might not understand this definition. So when you pass a rule, the requirements are right there in front of the owner to see, um, and it's easier for them to refer back to and know what is expected of them. The reason why you want to register with the city, once you're registered with the city, the condominium gets noted in the city's registry as a condominium where short-term rentals are prohibited. There's two benefits here. The first is that if an owner in your property tries to get a permit from the city to do short-term rentals, 
the, they will be denied their permit. The second benefit is if you do wind up with a short-term rental problem on your property, you can involve the city's bylaw department to help you take enforcement steps. So it makes it a bit, it makes the condo's job a bit easier. The point to be aware of though, with respect to the city's um, registration program is that the city's bylaw only deals with short-term rentals of 30 days or less. And so this is when the rule that I just talked about um, comes into play. So that rule, again, is going to expand that definition of family arrangement that's going to be permitted in your units. And it'll confirm that rentals on your property have to be of a minimum length duration, if, if that's what you want. Um, and it'll also talk about no Airbnb. So both the rule and the registry end up working together. But generally, in our experience, having both the rule and the registry is um, the best way for condominiums to help protect against these um, short-term rentals, rooming houses, Airbnbs. And the bottom line is that they're fairly inexpensive steps to take. Rules, um, we can prepare them. They're in the range of $550 to be prepared. We can also take care of registering your condominium with the city for you if you'd like. It's between three and $400, but they provide a significant amount of protection for your condominium if you wind up with these problems. I will put my email in the chat after this. I do take care of in our firm registering all of our clients if they want to be registered with the city. And if that's something you did want to do, you can just reach out to me directly and we can talk about costs from there. So those are my comments and I'll hand it back over to you, Nancy. Fabulous, Melinda. And apparently I created a new associate. I didn't want Melinda and Jessica's name. So we now had a Melissa on on Teams to, or on uh, Zoom today. So Melissa, wherever you happen to be, I hope you're enjoying our session. Melinda, thank you so much for that. And apologies. All right. That was fantastic. So we're moving right along on our next topic. But just before we get there, I just want to remind everybody, we have a couple of individuals sending us some live questions. Unfortunately, we can't take live questions today. We had a deadline for submitting our questions in advance because we have so many people with so many questions. We want to make sure we try and put as many of those topics together as possible. So for our future Q&A, watch out for that deadline so you could submit them in advance and we can get to your questions for you. So let's go to our next hot topic. And oh, my goodness, the numbers of questions we get about records. Emily, if you want to go ahead and join me, take over our microphone and tell us all about our hot topic record questions today. Awesome. Will do. Thank you, Nancy. So, yep, I'm going to be answering some questions that we received on records of condominium corporations. To provide a general overview, as many of our attendees will know, the Condominium Act at Section 55 sets out a list of documents that condominium corporations are required to keep as a part of their records. Similarly, Regulation 4801 under the Condominium Act at Section 13.1 also prescribes certain records that condominium corporations are required to maintain. As a part of a condominium corporation board of directors duties, under the Act, it is important to ensure that the corporation is maintaining adequate records as set out in the legislation. This becomes particularly important when the corporation receives a request for records. Which brings me to the question we received regarding the Hamid, Redroop, and Metropolitan Toronto Condominium Corporation 728 case. This case involved uh, a records request by an owner for the, for the corporation's record of notices relating to leases of units under Section 3883 of the Act. 
As many attendees may know, Section 83 of the Condo Act requires that owners who lease their units provide specific information to the corporation within a certain time frame, and also requires that the corporation keep a record of those notices. In the Hamid Rajroop case, the corporation's response to the owner's request for records indicated that the corporation did not have any record of lease units to provide to the owner and advised that the corporation had not received any Form 5s, which is a form that can be used to provide required notice in relation to a condominium unit lease. However, the corporation's periodic information certificates showed that the corporation was aware that a number of units were in fact leased, even though the landlords themselves had not provided formal notice to the corporation as required under Section 83 of the Act. As a result, the tribunal found that the corporation was aware of at least eight leased units within the condominium, and, the notice, and that notice of some sort must have been received by the corporation in relation to those leases. Therefore, to meet the requirements of the Act, a record of those notices should have been kept by the corporation. The tribunal ultimately found that MTCC 728 failed to keep adequate records and ordered the condo to create those records and provide a copy to the owner within 30 days, as well as pay a penalty of $750. The key takeaway from this case is the importance of adequate record keeping and being careful to work with the information that the corporation has received in maintaining or creating its records. And in particular, with respect to the corporation's obligation when it comes to the record of notices of lease, it is important to note that it's not the leases themselves that the corporation is required to maintain. It is the notices received from the owners relating to those leases of the units. So even in cases where landlords may fail to satisfy the formal requirements of Section 83, the condo corporation may nevertheless have sufficient informal notice to allow it to create the record required under Section 55. Ultimately, condominium corporations must be sure to understand their duties under the Act when it comes to maintaining records, including which records are required to, to be maintained and how. On the topic of corporation records, we also received a number of questions related to maintaining adequate board meeting minutes. Board meeting minutes have been the subject of a number of condominium authority tribunal decisions, and so there is some good guidance coming from the CAT on this topic. The general principles that the CAT has set out with respect to maintaining adequate board meeting minutes include ensuring that the minutes are accurate, ensuring that the minutes contain sufficient detail to understand the board's decisions, and that all board decisions must be recorded in the minutes. This means even when tentative board decisions are made, for instance, over email in between scheduled board meetings, as long as all directors accept this procedure, those decisions must still be ratified at a subsequent board meeting and recorded in the meeting minutes. The CAT has previously found that while board meeting minutes do not need to be a verbatim account of the meeting, they should at a minimum include the title of the meeting, the date of the meeting, persons in attendance, the business transacted at the meeting, a summary of the discussions. Again, there should be sufficient detail here to allow the reader to understand the decision being made by the board. In some instances, the board may refer to certain documents within the meeting minutes. On this issue, we received some questions regarding whether any documents referenced within a set of board meeting minutes would be considered records of the corporation. This can be a fact-specific analysis depending on the particular document in question. However, in general, 
if the document being referenced within the board meeting minutes is itself a record of the corporation, so a record that the corporation is required to maintain under the act, such as reports from the corporation's expert consultants, for example, then the document is a record regardless of whether it is referenced within the board meeting minutes. Now, in other cases where the document being referenced in the board minutes is not itself a record of the corporation, the nature of the document must be considered. For example, in a recent CAT case, Crab versus Toronto Standard Condominium Corporation 2150, where the owner had requested copies of email communications between the corporation's engineer and the corporation, the tribunal found that email communications are only considered a record of the corporation insofar as they contain reports or opinions of the expert consultant. Therefore, an owner would not be entitled to email communications between the corporation and its consultant that do not contain a report or formal opinion of that consultant, as they are not records of the corporation, even if those emails are referred to within the board's meeting minutes. Similarly, in another case, Smith and Metropolitan Toronto Condominium Corporation 773, the tribunal found that with respect to property management reports referenced within board meeting minutes, which are not specifically itemized as a record of the corporation under section 55 of the act, the management reports are drafts or notes and only become a record of the corporation to the extent they are approved and accepted by the board. And that is reflected in the minutes of the board meeting minutes of the board meeting. The owner in that case was only entitled to receive portions of the management reports that were approved and accepted by the board within the meeting minutes. So again, documents referenced within board minutes may themselves already be records of the corporation and may be subject to a request for records. Where the documents are not prescribed records of the corporation, a more specific analysis may be required. Lastly, just a reminder that records provided in response to a request for records are always subject to redactions in accordance with Section 55.4 of the Condo Act. For instance, any unit-specific information would need to be redacted. And if anyone is interested in learning more about the specifics of maintaining board meeting minutes, we have published a number of blogs on this topic, as well as many other topics, so I would encourage you to check out our blog. Thanks, Nance. Back to you. Fantastic, Emily. Records is definitely a hot topic. I think we get questions every single time and every single Q&A on records. So again, as Emily was suggesting, check out those blogs and hopefully you can have the answers to your questions if we haven't already addressed them. Excuse me. All right, we're going to move on to our next presenter today, Jessica. So the other part of our new Melissa Associates. So, and in fact, Jessica is talking about governance. So Jessica, I'm going to turn it over to you to our governance hot topics. Over to you. Thank you, Nancy. Let me just... Okay, so we got a, quite a few questions in about boards and condominium governance. So I'm going to touch on a variety of those topics. And for the next few minutes, we're going to do three quick questions and answers on the various questions we received. The first question that we got in is about former board members and how a current board of directors can involve a former board member in current issues. So for example, to gather historical information from a former board member who may have been involved with an issue that's ongoing, or to share new information with the former board member and solicit an opinion from them. As board composition changes, it's quite common for a current board to seek historical information from former board members. This sort of information gathering is completely fine and can help ensure that some historical knowledge of previous board members is not lost. 
However, if the board wants to involve a former director more formally in a discussion about a current issue, perhaps sharing confidential information with this former board member and seeking their opinion, the board can consider having that individual appointed as an officer for the purposes of that particular discussion. That's going to help ensure that the individual is subject to the same terms of confidentiality, etc., that all other directors and officers are. And appointing them as an officer would be done by way of board resolution. Now, we did get another uh, question about the relationship between directors and officers that I want to touch on for a second, and whether all directors are also officers of the corporation. In most condominiums, your directors and officers are the same people. However, they don't necessarily have to be. The example we just spoke about would be a case where one of your officers is not also a director of the corporation. Your directors are elected by the unit owners, while your officers are appointed to their positions by the boards by the board of directors and serve at the pleasure of the board. Section 39 of the Condominium Act states that the board must have a president and a secretary and may appoint one or more vice presidents or other officers. But the only position where an officer must also be a director is your president. For other officers, they do not necessarily have to also be directors, although, again, in most cases, you'll have the same individuals fulfilling both the roles of directors and officers. The second question we got is about reserve fund studies, and the question asks whether there is a penalty if a board of directors delays a reserve fund study, for example, if the board has delayed the study because they can't find anyone to do it. So as we know, condominium corporations need to complete a reserve fund study every three years. That said, there's no penalty per se for the board if this timeline is ex extended past the three years. The real concern with a delayed reserve fund study is when owners might go to sell their units, it's going to be flagged in the status certificate, which might be a concern for some purchasers. And for this reason, owners might well be upset that the corporation is not in strict compliance with the timing of their study. That said, we're aware of many condos who, for various reasons, have had to delay their studies past that three-year mark, and in some cases, it can make good sense to do so. Now, I've never really heard of a situation where a condo can't find anyone to do their study. There might be some cases that um, you're, the company can't complete the study quickly enough to meet that timing threshold, and in that case, you should schedule the study within a reasonable period with your engineer when they become available. But normally the delay is caused by the corporation being in the middle of a big building assessment or something like that. So they're in the middle of working with their expert to determine, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong with their roof, what's wrong with our piping, and what's our way forward. And those type of situations, the corporation is looking at a big upcoming expense and they need to figure out a plan to tackle it. In those cases, it can make sense to wait until the corporation has a plan with its experts so that this plan could be integrated into the new reserve uh, fund study. You're going to want to ensure that the status certificate explains why the new reserve fund study is late. For example, are you waiting to receive an engineering report on a large repair issue? But in these cases, it can be perfectly logical in the circumstances to delay the study to ensure that your new study is going to prof properly reflect the planning that the corporation is doing in consultation with its experts. That said, the board should be making best efforts to have the study completed within the required timeline, and if the study is being delayed, there needs to be a logical and reasonable explanation for why, and you're going to want to set out that reason why in your status certificate. And our last question today touches on governing documents. And the question was asking about rules and whether rules can or should have a verbatim repeat of what's in your declaration. They ask if there's any benefit to this, or should there only be one copy of the wording in the declaration since it's higher up on your hierarchy of governing documents? 
So this is a great question. And I will say that depending on the substance of your particular wording, it may or may not make sense to include it in both your declaration and your rules. Now, if there's an important part of your declaration that you want to bring to the, to the attention of the owners or flesh out an ex existing declaration provision further in your rules, it's not necessarily harmful to repeat wording from your declaration in your rules. In a perfect world, you know, every owner and resident would be familiar with the declaration bylaws and rules of their corporation, but unfortunately, we don't live in that world. So if you have something that's very important that you want to make sure owners see, repeating the wording in your rules can be one way to do that. To avoid any confusion, we always suggest that you make it clear in the rules that the wording comes from the declaration. So for example, for example, you can say very clearly in your rules that the declaration says X, Y, Z, and you can say that right in your rules document for reference. Again, you don't wanna repeat parts of your declaration that are unnecessary, but the rules can be a good way to bring attention to important provisions or clarify an existing declaration provision. And those are all my questions. Back to you, Nancy. Fantastic, Jessica. Thank you so much. And I was just following some of the questions and it looks like a lot of you on screen here today are going to see or have, sorry, have recognized your exact question from Jessica. So Jess, thank you so much for that. Okay, we're now gonna turn over to Nicole. Nicole is gonna talk to us about some interesting topics that are really timely, I think right now, security, access, party rooms, some of the key issues you need to be considering. And with all of the Christmas uh, and holiday events happening now, I think it's a great time to be thinking about these things. Nicole, over to you. Thanks, Nancy. I'm going to jump right in with a question about uh, party rooms. We were asked to address liability and user agreements for these types of rooms. And that is, what should a condominium corporation be considering for insurance coverage, indemnification, and alcohol consumption? My overall comment is that these issues should ideally be covered off by a carefully worded license agreement between the condominium corporation and the user of that particular common element facility. Starting with insurance, your condominium corporation's insurance policy should cover damage to the party room as part of the common elements in the, in the event of an insured loss. However, this would only apply to insured damage under the condominium corporation's insurance policy, such as damage from water escape or fire. In general, this would not apply to damage caused by the users of the room. Therefore, the condominium corporation may want to include a provision in your license agreements requiring an owner or resident to make arrangements for their own liability insurance coverage and provide proof of insurance before using the space. This option adds some work to renting the space, but it also ensures that other owners are not ultimately held responsible to cover costs for damage caused by another resident's social event. An indemnification provision is another good idea to avoid other owners being held responsible to pay costs incurred by another resident's social event. This is a good tool to achieve that goal. An indemnification provision is a term that you, you would include in your license agreement that would hold the renter responsible to pay or to reimburse the condominium corporation for any loss, cost, or damage incurred in relation to their rental of the space. This would essentially apply to any damage that isn't covered by the condominium corporation's insurance. Again, the goal here is to ensure that innocent third parties aren't left responsible to pay costs they did nothing to incur. Turning now to alcohol consumption, I'm going to discuss this in the context of social host liability. I've been talking about insurance coverage and responsibility for costs, and these are important topics where events are held where alcohol may be consumed. 
alcohol adds another level of potential liability and responsibility. <clears throat> we know from a well-known case called Child that generally speaking, social hosts will not necessarily be held liable for their guests. In the child's case, which involves a tragic set of events, a guest left a party under the influence of alcohol and on his drive home, hit another car head on. <clears throat> there were four young people in that other car. One died in the accident and the other three were seriously injured. One of the injured passengers who was left paralyzed in the accident sued the driver as well as the hosts of the party that the driver had attended that night. Ultimately, the Supreme Court denied the claim against the hosts. The court held that, generally speaking, the host of a private party where alcohol is served, called a social host, is not liable to a member of the public for injuries caused by a guest, unless the host was actively involved in creating or contributing to the event that caused the injury. It's important to note that the hosts in this case did not serve the guests alcohol. It was a BYOB party. The host did not monitor how much alcohol each guest had consumed and did not know that this particular guest was intoxicated. The result of a case like this may well be different if guests are knowingly overserved by a host. Host liability is also very different for commercial hosts, that is, businesses whose operation includes serving alcohol, such as bars and restaurants. In that type of public setting, where the host really has a financial incentive to overserve, the Supreme Court has recognized that those hosts are under a duty to monitor the alcohol consumption of their patrons, and that they may be held liable for injuries suffered by members of the public caused by impaired patrons. So there are a few key takeaways regarding host liability here. Whether a party room rental or a social event is held by your condominium corporation, it's important to continue to act responsibly and reasonably where alcohol is consumed. You may want to consider limiting the use of your party rooms so that they're not rented out like public spaces, like a banquet hall, for example, so that only private social events are hosted in your community. Our next question relates to changes in the common elements and enforcement. What can be done when a condominium corporation has failed to enforce the rules respecting common element modification? A condominium corporation can lose the ability to enforce any requirement in the governing documents if the, if the condominium corporation fails to consistently enforce the requirement. This can apply, for instance, if owners are permitted to make unauthorized common element modification. So what are your options for going forward if you're in this situation? Well, first you need to address the existing non-compliant conditions that have been previously permitted to continue. The idea is to take steps to get back on track. In other words, to resurrect the legality of the applicable requirements. Two possible options to do that are one, for the condominium corporation to cover some of the costs that must be incurred to remove the violation, or in other words, to reverse the unauthorized change, or two, to allow those non-compliant modifications to continue as legacy exceptions. There may be other options as well, depending upon the specific circumstances. What will be appropriate for your community will really depend on the nature of the non-compliant conditions. Once you've dealt with the existing conditions, you'll also need to turn your condominium corporation's mind to what action will be taken going forward. Again, there are options here. You can pass new rules or bylaws, which would include notice of the legacy exemptions and requirements that will be adhered to going forward. There is also a process by which a board can resurrect a rule. Again, this will depend on the nature of the non-compliant activities that have been permitted. 
If, for instance, restrictions on dogs set out in the rules have not been enforced in the past, and a new board is elected and wants to start enforcing the rules, those rules can be resurrected. That is, the board would provide notice to the owners explaining that a particular rule has not been enforced in the past. As a result, we have these dogs that do not comply with um, the rules and they were mistakenly allowed. You would have to identify um, what exactly the existing non-compliant conditions are that are being legacied. But now we, the board, are now going to start fulfilling our statutory obligation to enforce these rules. With either option, you have to be careful that you don't breach your fiduciary duty to, to owners. You have to keep fairness in mind in these types of situations. If you're faced with taking any of these steps, I would recommend consulting your legal counsel to make sure you're taking those steps appropriately. The last question that I'll be addressing is a three-part question that relates to security cameras and surveillance. The three parts are, one, can residents put security cameras on the door of their unit? Two, can the board release video clips of an infraction that is part of a police investigation? And three, can the board release video clips to residents at any time? I'm going to preface my response to these questions by saying that surveillance and privacy in condominium communities is a loaded topic. If your condominium corporation is considering new surveillance measures, it's likely a good idea to consult your legal counsel. But turning to the questions at hand, uh, first, can residents put security cameras on the door to their unit? Generally speaking, residents and guests are entitled to expect a certain level of privacy while on condominium property. Surveillance of the common elements from individual units has the potential to breach the privacy rights of others. So the installation of anything that has surveillance capabilities in condominiums needs to be very carefully considered and if permitted, carefully regulated and controlled. We've seen some condominiums that now include things like video doorbells in their common element modification bylaw or agreement. If your condominium has such a bylaw, then owners may well be able to install certain security cameras on the door of their unit, provided that they meet any requirements set out in the bylaw. If your condominium corporation intends to permit surveillance of this nature, it's wise to consider setting it out in a bylaw so that requirements and restrictions are clear. It's important to restrict exactly what can be in view of the camera. The angle or distance viewable should maximize the privacy on the common elements and ensure that other units are not captured by the camera. It's, the, a bylaw of this nature would also put other owners uh, and residents on notice that there is surveillance equipment on the property. If your condominium does not have a bylaw addressing this change, installing any surveillance equipment on a unit door will likely require board authorization as well as a Section 98 agreement, depending on your condominium's unit boundaries. Again, a board faced with a request of this nature should turn their minds to what restrictions are necessary to protect the privacy of others using the property. So moving now to the second and third parts of this question, which both relate to surveillance by condominium corporations and uh, the handling of the product of that surveillance. Generally speaking, if it's necessary for the safety and security of persons using condominium property or to prevent property damage, it may be appropriate for a condominium corporation to install surveillance equipment on the property. However, surveillance by the condominium corporation is subject to the same privacy concerns as individual unit surveillance. That is, cameras need to be positioned carefully so that private areas are not inadvertently captured, and there needs to be some type of notice so that people on the property are aware that it's under surveillance. 
With respect to handling any footage collected by the cameras, the same balance between security of the property and privacy should be kept in mind. If a condominium corporation is asked to share footage with a police department to assist in a criminal investigation, I don't see any reason that the corporation should not provide the requested footage to the police. Releasing footage to individual residents, on the other hand, raises several concerns. In addition to the risk of breaching privacy rights, providing footage to residents could lead to unintended consequences. A resident asking to review surveillance footage could have ulterior motive, motives that you're not aware of. And if the footage is genuinely needed for a police investigation, there is no reason to provide the requested footage to the individual resident rather than the police. Alternatively, you could have a board member review the footage uh, for a specific reason and report on what's in the footage. Overall, it would be really um, a rare circumstance, I can't think of any off the top of my head, where it'd be appropriate to release the footage directly to a resident. If you're faced with a request of that nature, I would recommend consulting legal counsel before releasing any footage. Those are my comments, Nancy, back to you. Fantastic, Nicole. And man, those are some tricky topics. So as Nicole suggested, uh, safety, security, any of those types of things, probably a wise to reach out to your legal counsel. And on party rooms, particularly with holiday festivities in play, make sure you're carefully reviewing all the documentation related to responsibilities for those uh, for those arrangements. And now everyone's favorite topic, at least I think most of us here and mostly Jim. Uh, we're going to turn over to Jim to talk about insurance. So Jim, over to you. Thanks very much, Nance. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, here are the questions and my answers respecting uh, insurance and liability. Question number one, if my unit is damaged by an insured event under the condominium corporation's policy, can I use my own contractor to carry out the repairs? My short answer is not unless the corporation's insurer or the corporation agrees. So to explain, the corporation's insurer is in control of repairs that are insured under the corporation's policy and has the right to decide on the appointed contractor. The insurer may agree to your selected contractor, but if they do that, it may be subject to an upset limit for the amount to be paid by the insurer usually based upon an estimate from the insurer's contractor. Alternatively, in some cases, the insurer may be prepared to pay you a lump sum in exchange for a release. However, a further concern that I want to mention is as follows. The condominium corporation has an obligation to take reasonable steps to ensure that insured repairs are properly completed. So in those cases where the owner is permitted to arrange for repairs that are covered by the corporation's insurance, the corporation might want to inspect the unit in order to verify that the repairs have been properly and actually completed. This is something to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis whenever dealing with these sorts of uh, special arrangements with owners in relation to insured damage. One further note, in many cases, the damage may be a mix of damage covered by the corporation's insurance and damage covered by the owner's insurance or damage that will be covered by the owner themselves. In those cases, the two insurance adjusters might agree to let a single contractor carry out all of the work with an understanding about how the repair costs will be shared by the two insurers. 
Anyway, the bottom line point is as follows. When you are dealing with insured damage under a condominium corporation's insurance policy, the corporation's insurer generally has the right to choose the repair contractor. Question number two, who has legal responsibility if a child is hurt when playing on snow that is piled on the common elements? So I'm gonna start with a lawyer's answer. Liability in such cases will very much depend upon the specific circumstances. But let me try to be a little more helpful as follows. Condominium corporations are the occupiers of the common elements and are therefore responsible to keep the common elements reasonably safe. So the condominium corporation would almost certainly be sued if a child is injured when playing on a snow pile on the common elements. Assuming there is a snow removal contractor involved, the snow removal contractor would also almost certainly be sued for negligence and or for breach of contract. Some further notes. Um, the special notice requirements under the Occupier's Liability Act, which apply to accidents involving snow or ice, would likely apply to this sort of accident. And as I said, ultimate liability will depend upon all of the circumstances, including any reasonable efforts to prevent children from playing on the snow pile, the size and duration of the snow pile, the terms of the snow removal contract, etc. So again, determining ultimate liability in this sort of situation would be a fact-specific exercise in each case. Question number three, uh, this deals with inspections and cleaning of fireplace flues. Is it okay to allow the owner to delay this until next year if the owner signs a waiver? And my short answer to this is no. The first task is, of course, to review the governing documents, the Condominium Act, the survey plans, the declaration bylaws and rules to determine who is responsible for the inspection and the cleaning of the flues, whether the condominium corporation or the owner. But even if it is the owner's responsibility, the condominium corporation has a shared responsibility. The fire code says that wood burning chimney flues must be inspected at least annually and must be cleaned of creosote whenever the inspection indicates a need. Even if this is the owner's responsibility, the corporation has a duty, both under the fire code and under the Condominium Act, to take reasonable steps to ensure that the owners fulfill this responsibility. This corporate duty is owed to all owners and occupants and to future owners and occupants, and of course is particularly important given that this is a matter of safety. So in summary, condominium corporations are obligated to take reasonable steps to ensure that owners are attending to their obligations in relation to their fireplace flues. To fulfill those obligations, condominium corporations may have various options. For instance, one good option may be to actually attend to the inspections and any required cleaning on behalf of the owners. Many condominium corporations do that. Another option may be to send annual notices to the owners and obtain written confirmation from the owners as to completion of the required inspection and as to completion of any required cleaning. There may be other options as well, depending on the circumstances. That brings me to the idea of a waiver. In my view, a waiver likely won't overcome these duties for a couple of reasons. 
Firstly, the duties are owed to many persons who would not be signing a waiver. For instance, other owners and occupants and future owners and occupants. Secondly, Section 176 of the Condominium Act reads as follows. This act applies despite any agreement to the contrary. So in other words, the corporation's statutory duties apply essentially despite any waiver. But before moving to my last question, question number four, I should add that this is an important consideration anytime a condominium corporation considers asking an owner for any sort of waiver, pool waivers, hobby room waivers, etc. In short, it may often be very difficult for a condominium corporation to enforce a waiver because waivers likely can't overcome a condominium corporation's statutory obligations. Waivers can still be a good idea in some cases because they may provide some protection. But the point is that waivers can't overcome the corporation's statutory duties. Now, my final question, number four, we, uh, here's the, here it is. We have reached an agreement with an owner to repair damage to her condo caused by a leak quite some time ago. Issue was tabled several year, years ago and records are sketchy at best. We need an agreement signed between the corporation and the owner, whereby the corporation pays 50% of the accepted contractor bid. What information should be included in this agreement to best protect the corporation? We don't want to pay for moving furniture, etc. This question deals with a settlement based upon payment of an agreed amount from the condominium corporation to the owner. So I think this settlement just needs a carefully crafted release signed by the owner stating that the payment covers any and all liability that the condominium corporation could possibly have in relation to the particular water damage. In my view, a well-drafted release is what is required. And I think it makes sense probably to first decide upon the agreed settlement amount, which would be paid upon signing of a release in an agreed form, a release acceptable to the condominium corporation. Now, I have one other thought I wanna mention. Whenever a condominium corporation is dealing with unit repairs, you also have that duty, which I talked about previously, to ensure that the repairs have been properly completed if there is any doubt, and particularly if there could be risks for others. In my view, most of the time, there's no reason to be concerned about this. After all, owners are carrying out unit repairs all the time, and condominium corporations don't check every repair unless there is a cause for concern. Furthermore, most unit repairs are no risk to anyone other than the particular owner. But sometimes you might need to be concerned about hidden problems, for instance, mold, which could be a latent or hidden concern for a future owner or occupant. Anyway, here's the point. If you have any cause to question whether or not the owner has properly carried out the repairs, you might want to consider a unit inspection in order to verify. So that's one other step that you might want to consider. That's it for me, Nance. Thanks, everyone. Fantastic, Jim. And insurance is never dull. Uh, every single time you think, oh, maybe I'm just dealing with repair and maintenance, you never know when insurance can be creeping up as well. On the subject of agreements and challenging situations, well, every condo, as we all know, is a microcosm of society. So every condo will often have one individual who maybe is a bit more challenging than others. Vic, we just lost your video. I'll just send you a request to start video again. I'm going to turn it over to Victoria now to take us through some of our questions about 
how to deal with a wee bit of a challenge. Thank you, Nancy. So my first question today is regarding how to deal with uh, owners and tenants who are not complying with the provisions of a condominium's governing documents and the Condominium Act. Um, the, the specific question that was submitted today was um, about a non-compliant owner who was leaving um, excessive furniture and or other belongings uh, on their balcony. But I think my comments today uh, apply to the majority of non-compliant behaviors among condominium residents. So as a starting point, uh, Section 17.3 of the Condominium Act, Condominium Act confirms that condominiums are required to take reasonable steps to enforce the provisions of the Condominium Act and its governing documents. When dealing with non-compliant residents, it's really important to act reasonably throughout the matter. Time and time again, we've seen how important it is to the CAT and the court to see condominiums acting reasonably with residents, even in cases where the residents are acting unreasonably. Um, now, a condo acting reasonably when dealing with a non-compliant resident typically involves sending notices to the non-compliant uh, resident advising of their non-compliant behavior. In these notices, you'll want to provide a reasonable opportunity to the non-compliant resident to correct the non-compliant behavior. You'll want to also include a warning that if the non-compliant behavior does not cease, the condominium may be required to involve legal counsel and then seek um, recovery of all related legal costs and or start a legal proceeding in order to uh, obtain the resident's compliance. Um, when sending these notices, make sure that you involve all of the appropriate parties. If there is an individual with mental health concerns, consider involving family, friends, and or medical professionals. If there is a non-compliant tenant, involve the owner. Don't just deal with the tenant or owner on their own. It's really important that everyone understands um, or everyone involved understands the impact of the actions being taken. Where possible, um, you may want to consider meeting with the non-compliant resident and any other involved parties to discuss possible ways to resolve um, the non-compliant behavior. Sometimes getting into a room or on the phone or even a screen and explaining the impact of the non-compliance can really help to resolve the matter. Um, if the resident still does not comply, the condo's next step may be to involve legal counsel to send one or more legal letters, and then if necessary, to start a legal proceeding at the CAT or in court. Um, or in some cases, the condominium may prefer to take legal proceedings, particularly a CAT application on their own without legal counsel. Um, this is something to be carefully considered in any given case. Um, Prior to proceeding to the CAT and report, you'll need to, uh, one, ensure that you've taken all reasonable steps in an effort to resolve the dispute. As I said, whether a party has taken reasonable steps is always something that the CAT and report uh, will consider and analyze when hearing a matter. Um, you'll also want to consider what evidence you have, and if you don't have sufficient evidence to support your case, ensure that you are taking steps to obtain that further evidence before starting your legal proceeding. Certain disputes require different evidence, and so if you're not sure what evidence um, is required to support your case, um, reach out to your prof the professionals. Um, relatedly, you'll also want to consider whether or not you need expert evidence. Um, if needed, follow uh, your expert's guidance. Section uh, 37.3 of the uh, Condominium Act uh, confirms that a condominium can't be faulted if they follow their expert's advice. And then finally, 
ensure that you've provided notice of a potential uh, legal proceeding and the potential ramifications of the recovery of legal costs. Um, this is important because, as I said, um, this is something that the CAT and or court will look for. And this is something that they particularly factor in when it comes to cost awards. Um, so my second question, and which is related to my first question, is whether uh, the condominium corporation should be responsible for enforcing a tenant's compliance with the Condominium Act and the condominium's governing documents. In other words, the question is, whether the landlord owner and not the condominium should be responsible for enforcing and incurring the related costs uh, surrounding a tenant's noncompliance. The answer to this question is uh, that both the condominium corporation and the landlord owner are responsible for enforcing a tenant's compliance with the provisions of the Condominium Act and a condominium's governing documents. Section 119.2 of the Condominium Act obligates a landlord owner to take reasonable steps to enforce their tenant's compliance with the provisions of the Condominium Act and the condominium's governing documents. Likewise, Section uh, 17.3 obligates a condominium corporation to take reasonable steps to ensure that any resident, which includes a tenant, complies with these same provisions. And so when dealing with a non-compliant tenant, the condominium corporation should be dealing with and communicating to both the landlord owner and the tenant because they're both involved in the matter. The CAT has found that where a condo has only involved the landlord owner and did not involve uh, the tenant with respect to uh, trying to resolve the tenant's non-compliance. The condo had missed an opportunity to resolve the matter with the tenant and therefore had failed to take a reasonable step. On the flip side, the condo or the cat has found that where a condo has only involved the tenant and did not involve the landlord owner, uh, the condo should should not be able to fully recover costs from the landlord owner because the landlord was not aware of the tenant's noncompliance and was therefore not provided a reasonable opportunity to resolve the matter. This really comes into play with respect to cost awards. So it's really important to um, involve both the landlord owner and the tenant. Now, a caveat to communicating with a tenant or um, even an owner for that matter is if the tenant's communications uh, constitute harassment. If the tenant's communications reach that point, the condominium might properly decide to communicate with only the owner um, about the dispute. But whether a tenant's communications constitute harassment and how uh, a condo should deal with that harassment is something that needs to be assessed very carefully and on a case-by-case -case basis. The second part of this question um, inquired whether a condominium corporation can recover the costs um, from the landlord owner for having to deal with their non-compliant tenant. Ultimately, enforcement costs, including the costs of enforcing a tenant's compliance, are a part of the cost of doing business as a condominium corporation. That said, uh, just like other enforcement costs, there is a possibility of recovering such costs via your declarations indemnification provision and or through um, a CAT and or court proceeding. In general, it is our view that if a landlord is taking reasonable steps to enforce their or is not taking reasonable steps to enforce their tenants compliance, and as long as the condominium has carefully and reasonably involved the landlord and the tenant throughout the matter, it's our opinion that the landlord should be jointly liable for all of the costs caused by the landlord's tenant. Um, now, ideally, this would be supported by a strong, clear indemnification provision contained in the condominium's uh, 
uh, governing documents. Um, but again, but whether or not a condominium can ultimately recover these costs is uh, something that needs to be reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so Nancy, those are all my comments for today. Back over to you. Fantastic, Victoria. And again, really tricky issues, landlord tenant issues. Uh, a reminder, of course, a condo is not a landlord unless you've got a superintendent suite, perhaps. So in all those types of situations, carefully consider where your obligations lie. Okay, another tricky issue. My goodness, we have so many tricky issues today. David, just before I turn over to you, quick reminder, folks, because this is our Q&A as opposed to our condo crunch, we go between 1 and 1.30. So we probably, uh, the way we're looking, we have three more speakers. We'll probably be closer to about a 1.20 to a 1.30 mark today. Uh, so hopefully you're able to stick around for about another 20 minutes to half an hour. David's going to talk to us all about EV charging. David, over to you. Thanks, Nancy. Yes, so my topic is about electric vehicles, specifically EV charging stations at condominiums. Now, this is a rather hot topic as we are likely to see more and more people take up and own EVs in the future. And we can see this reflected in new condominium developments. We're seeing more and more in these newer buildings um, coming with uh, EV charging stations pre-installed. And the benefit of this arrangement is that the use of these charging stations would then be governed by the new condominium corporation's governing documents. The questions on EVs that we received for today are really more with respect to existing condominiums. So I'm now gonna go read those questions. One, can a condo corporation put a moratorium in place for electric car charging, whether that be trickle or fast charge stations until such time that society has a better handle on the infrastructure to support them, also, so that the condo corporation does not go piecemeal on installing them. And the other one, can a condo deny electric charging in an underground garage because of a possible fire? Also, if a condominium allows one owner to install a plug to charge, can then they deny others from installing the same charger or to have such chargers removed if the circuit capacity is reached? These questions touch on the primary issue facing existing condominiums when it comes to EV chargers. The challenge of balancing the rights of condominium owners and residents who wish to have a charger and those who do not have EVs. Now, this can be a challenging issue because the governing documents for existing condominium corporations often don't have provisions that govern this issue because when these condos were created, um, the documents weren't the, the drafters of the documents weren't contemplating the advent of electric vehicles. And we here at DHA are increasingly seeing these issues arise. As an overview, there are currently regulations under the Condominium Act that outlines the procedure for installing EV charging stations at existing condominiums. Under these provisions, a condo board can, in certain situations, install EV charging stations at the condominium's expense if, one, the installation cost, excluding post-installation and operating expenses, is no more than 10% of the condominium's annual budget, and two, the board believes that the owners would not regard the installation as a major reduction or elimination of their use of the condominium property. If these conditions are met, the board can notify the owners with details of the proposed installation and proceed with the work 60 days later. Owners would then only have the right to call a meeting to challenge 
the board's proposed installation if either of those two conditions above are not met. If the upgrades cost more than 10% of the condominium's annual budget, the condominium can still make the upgrades, but it needs to do so after providing notice to the owners and providing the owners an opportunity to requisition a meeting to vote on the proposed changes. The current regulations also allow owners to install an EV charging station at their own expense, provided they, that they apply to the condo board in writing. The board must respond to the owner's application within 60 days or by a mutually agreed upon deadline. The ability for the board to reject an owner's application is limited. An application can only be rejected if an expert such as an engineer concludes that the installation would, one, be contrary to a statute or regulation, two, adversely affect the structural integrity of a condominium property or assets, or three, pose a serious health and safety risk to people or a serious risk to damage to condominium property or assets. If an owner's application to install an EV charger is accepted, the parties must then enter into an installation agreement. The agreement determines various things, but the most important ones will be obviously responsibility for the cost associated with uh, installing the charging station, maintenance costs, um, who's going to be responsible for the extra hydro consumption, etc. And obviously, any disputes that may arise are also governed under uh, such an agreement. I think. There are a few principles that can be taken from the framework that's in place under the Condominium Act with respect to EV chargers. One, the decision of whether or not to install chargers, whether that's through a condominium corporation's initiative or in response to an owner's application, rests largely with the elected boards of the condominium. Two, there is significant flexibility within the framework to uh, permit each condominium corporation to kind of decide which approach works best for them. For some condominiums, a more comprehensive project to install chargers may be more preferable. But for other condominiums, it may be better for their community if they adopt a more piecemeal approach. The important element here is that all of this requires the condominium corporation to make decisions based off good, solid expert advice. When you're dealing with these types of situations, get an expert involved such as an engineer, to look at your condominium's electrical systems or other systems that might be relevant to see what is and what isn't possible in your building. The expert's commentary is going to drive much of the decision-making process on this issue, and this is particularly the case when it comes to responding to an owner's application to install a charger. As I mentioned before, the regulations state that the board can only reject an application from an owner on the basis of an expert opinion. So if we take a hypothetical example where um, the engineer concludes that the, the proposed installation of the charger is going to cause a serious health and safety issue because of a possible fire, then maybe in that type of hypothetical situation, there might be a basis to deny the application to install a charger. But the message here is that for you to actually make any of these kind of decisions, you need to have the expert, such as the engineer, come in and provide the corporation with an overview of what is and what is impossible. So finding solutions to these issues doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Living in a condominium does mean that sometimes there can be issues where there's competing interests, such as in this case, 
But to solve these issues, the board has to consider both the interests of the individual and as well as the interests of the community as a whole. They're often, most of the time, our solutions, even though it seems that it's going to be a zero-sum game, but seek uh, the help of experts in determining what it is and what is impossible. And more often than not, there will be a solution that will suit the community as a whole uh, for both the short and the long term. And with that, Nancy, that's all from me. Fabulous, David. And actually, as technology is changing as well, David, it's changing, I think, almost on a monthly basis these days. We're seeing new and exciting technology come out that offers new ideas. Uh, you know, we've even seen plugs, just little plugs that plug in and can potentially measure electricity uh, consumption. So uh, fantastic, David. Thank you so much for that. Stay tuned, folks, for more updates as we also learn at DHA about all of the new and exciting things going on with EV charging. And speaking of new and exciting ventures, Bitcoin. My goodness, um, I have so much to learn about Bitcoin, Cheryl. I'm really excited for your presentation because I am about to learn everything I ever needed to know, I think, about what I can and can't do for condos and Bitcoins. So, Cheryl, over to you. <laughs> Thanks, Nancy. Yes, I do definitely have a mixed bag of questions today from templates to Bitcoins. So I'm going to start with templates. We were asked whether we have standard templates for employment contracts, rooftop licenses, rules, et cetera. And I just want to confirm the difference between templates and precedents, at least in my mind. Templates, in my view, are documents that you can provide and they can be used without review or amendment. So an example of this would be a common element modification agreement that a condominium would use in conjunction with a common element modification bylaw. Precedents, on the other hand, are helpful documents that guide the process of creating agreements, but they are more of a living document that need to be reviewed and amended. These are more of a starting point. So in some cases, we can provide precedent rules, for example, that condominiums can use and review and revise as they see fit for their community to pull rules that they think are applicable to their own community. And these can be provided for a base fee. However, there are many precedents that we use as a starting point, which are not generally sent out to clients without reviewing the condo's particular needs. So here's an example of why. So in some cases, like employment contracts, we need to ensure that the contract is up to date when it's used and that it properly captures the employee-employer relationship. There's a concern if a precedent is sent out that a client will think that they can use that document um, for multiple different employment agreements and they can use it over a number of years. And that is just not possible as in particular with employment agreements. The employment law changes so often um, that employment agreements really should be reviewed on an annual basis. Um, at a minimum on an annual basis. So this is true even with existing contracts. So if you have employees in your corporation and you have employment, you should have employment contracts with them, but you should be looking at these contracts on a yearly basis to make sure that they're up to date with um, any changes in the law. And this is uh, helpful to ensure if there's a problem in the future with the employee employment relationship, or if there's a termination um, that you as a condominium corporation and the employer in that case are properly protected. 
So a similar issue exists with respect to lease, lo, ah, sorry, rooftop leases. While we do have precedents that we look to, each condominium corporation has different needs and considerations that must be taken into account when entering into these types of agreements. So that was just a really long way of saying, yes, we do have some excellent precedents that we use to help us keep costs down. But some cannot be sent out to clients without specific legal advice being provided in order to ensure that the condominium corporation is properly protected. Okay, next we had a question about candidate qualifications for the board, in particular with respect to arrears. And so to begin, I just must confirm that the director qualifications can vary from condominium to condominium corporation, depending on each condominium's bylaws. So the starting point when you're looking at what qualifications a candidate must have for the board is Section 29 of the Condominium Act, which confirms that you must be an individual who's 18 years old or over, not bankrupt, and not having been found incapable um, or incapable of managing property. And then once you look at those qualifications, you will look at your own cor condominium corporation's bylaws to see whether there are any additional qualifications that are relevant to your corporation. So if we look specifically at the issue of um, candidate arrears, there are no restrictions under Section 29 of the Act on candidate or directors being in arrears. However, even if the condo bylaws are also silent about arrears, there are some things that you have to keep in mind. So the first being candidates must disclose if they're in arrears for 60 days or more um, when they're um, doing their candidate disclosure. So this is information that would be provided to the owners. Second, if the candidate is successful, becomes a director, and, and they say they were in 30 year, days arrears at the time that they were a candidate, they got on the board and they were in arrears, they ended up having a lien registered on their unit, and they didn't pay off that lien within 90 days of the lien registration, then they would automatically be disqualified as a director. So the issue of arrears is relevant and it can end up resulting in a director being disqualified. Finally, I did want to note that unit owners in arrears of 30 days or more would not be eligible to vote at the meeting um, when, when that election took place. So in summary, being in arrears doesn't preclude a candidate from running from the board unless they have a lien on their unit that's over 30 days old. However, they would not be able to vote and they could be disqualified at some point if the arrears are not resolved. So um, one other note I wanted to make is we did receive a number of questions about individual director qualification provisions that could be included in condominium corporations bylaws and whether certain ones would be upheld. These are more of a fact specific uh, issues and so the answer can depend on the individual condominium. As a result, I'm not going into specific uh, qualification provisions. Okay, my last question deals with concerns about Bitcoin mining in bulk metered condominiums. So to begin, I'm going to start with what is a what is a Bitcoin or Bitcoin and crypto mining and how is it relevant to condominium living? So as a very high level overview, Bitcoin is a unit of virtual currency and Bitcoin mining is the process of creating new Bitcoin by solving extremely complicated math problems using computer software that verified transactions in the network. 
When a Bitcoin is successfully mined, the miner receives a predetermined amount of Bitcoin. So for the purposes of today, I'm referring to Bitcoin, but there are also other types of cryptocurrency that can be mined. So um, it my comments don't just relate to Bitcoin, but they can relate to crypto mining in general. Okay, so if that still seems confusing, it's okay. The good news is we don't have to have a clear understanding on Bitcoin mining to understand the issues as it applies to condominium corporations. So what does crypto mining or Bitcoin mining have to do with condominium corporations? Well, the concern with Bitcoin mining is that it uses a lot of electricity. So this can be a problem in bulk metered condominiums. In one article I reviewed, it stated that each Bitcoin transaction requires 235 kilowatt hours, which they say that is enough to provide power to a home for nine days. Some Bitcoin miners can mine multiple Bitcoins per hour. So that is a significant amount of energy usage. As a result, in bulk metered condominiums, where all owners pay for the condominium's energy consumption based on the common expense apportionment, this increased usage could result in a significant inequity. So if this is happening in your condominium corporation, what can be done about it? As a starting point, common expense apportionments are set by the declarant at the time that the condominium is created. And these apportionments are not always based off a specific formula and are not to be examined under a microscope. Unit owners on the first floor can't be exempt from payment for elevator replacement just because they live on the first floor. Owners without balconies cannot be exempt from a special assessment on balconies just because they don't have a balcony. The common expense apportionment is thought to have taken into consideration the joint and shared nature of the building, and owners, generally speaking, will be required to pay their proportionate share of the common expenses. Now, having said that, the court has held in certain circumstances that there can be an exception to this general rule um, in the event that there are excessive usage of utilities by one unit owner, resulting in inequity and unfairness to the other unit owners. In those circumstances, the condominium corporation can take steps to make that individual unit owner responsible for the disproportionate use. So there were a couple of key cases that dealt with this. One case is the case of Yearful Investments, where a unit owner operated a restaurant. In that case, the use of water greatly exceeded the common expense apportionment for that owner's unit. In that case, it was about 6%. In fact, the water usage of this unit was almost double that of all other owners combined. So the court in that case concluded that this unit owner was using almost twice what all of the other units together use and separate metering was necessary to prevent an unjust, unrich, sorry, unjust enrichment or windfall to the respondent and an undue hardship to the balance of the unit owners. In MTCC 659 in Truman, a unit owner was growing cannabis in the unit with a personal use exemption for medical reasons. About a year after Mr. Truman moved into the condo, the condo noticed a significant increase in the water bill. The court concluded after reviewing the, court, the condominium corporation's evidence that Mr. Truman's use of water was disproportionate to the allotted 5.13% share of common expenses and was inequitable and unfair, 
And Mr. Truman was therefore held responsible for the disproportionate use. He had to pay for the water costs over and above what he was um, supposed to be using. Okay, so the bottom line is that a unit owner can be held responsible for excessive consumption when evidence confirms that the use is inequitable. So the corporation would need to gather evidence to support its concerns on increased use. If the corporation does find someone is mining Bitcoin and their energy use is disproportionate, then it can take steps to hold the unit owner responsible for that use. Another option that the condominium corporation could consider in a situation where there's um, excessive energy consumption would be installing sweet metering in all units. Um, the Energy Consumer Protection Act does permit condominium corporations to install sweet meters despite a provision in the declaration. This act makes it easier for condominiums to take steps to install sweet meters. So installing sweet metering would resolve concerns about excessive consumption because each unit would be responsible for their own consumption. And it can also make some uh, can sometimes make owners more mindful of their own consumption. All right, Nancy, over to you. Thank you, Cheryl. And I'm glad that we could we were able to bring it down to the how it is specific to condos, because I'm not sure that I'm ever going to really understand how that works in the background one day, perhaps. Thank you, Cheryl. Thanks. All right. And our last speaker for today, our guru on Tarion and litigation and building deficiencies, etc., is going to wrap us up with uh, some of the key issues that we're seeing uh, from our clients on Tarion or building deficiencies. Christy. Thanks, Nancy. Over to you. Thank you. Um, so uh, the question that we had uh, for this Q&A with respect to Tarion, um, I found to be an interesting one. I think that it's probably something a lot of uh, condominium corporations deal with. Um, it relates to the unit owner surveys that are completed as part of the performance audit process. So the specific question is, I was away and did not fill out the survey the board sent out about first year warranties. I have now discovered that I have the same problem with my windows as other owners. Am I out of luck for having this issue covered? So to begin, I want to distinguish between the common element warranties that are available and the unit owner warranties that are available uh, within a condominium corporation. So under the Tarion program, each individual unit owner has uh, warranties that relate to their units. And they will make claims to Tarion on their own behalf with respect to those specific unit problems or defects. On the flip side, the condominium corporation itself has warranties available in relation to the common elements. And it's the condominium corporation that's responsible for asserting or um, making those claims with Tarion on behalf of the entire condominium corporation. Uh, this is done, as, as anyone who is involved in a newer condominium corporation will be aware, this is done through the performance audit process. So a, a consultant will come in and will review the physical components of the common elements and will prepare a performance audit that will outline any defects or symptoms of problems that have been identified in relation to the common elements. As part of that process, the consultant will typically have a unit owner survey distributed to all units. Often this is done through management or through the board. The survey is sent out to all owners and there's a series of questions, most of which will relate to the common element features that only unit owners will uh, see because of their location. So an example of this are uh, windows located within uh, a unit. Often, 
for, for the most part, windows are part of the common elements. It's not the case in every condominium corporation, but for most condominium corporations, windows are part of the common elements. So if there are problems with the windows, like leaks or um, air coming through uh, the window frames, these are the kinds of problems that only the unit owner who is residing in the unit with the problematic window is going to be able to identify. Uh, so the unit surveys are distributed to owners to uh, provide insight as to what exactly might be going on within the units that only the unit owners are going to see, but that relate to the common elements. Um, once these, these surveys are completed by the owners, they're submitted back to uh, the performance audit consultant who compiles the surveys and identifies any common problems um, and may also just identify isolated problems within certain units. Uh, the question in this case relates to uh, what happens if this if this survey is not completed in one case or in um, in a number of cases, and that the unit owner who failed to complete the survey um, uh, later identifies that they have problems with the common element windows in this case. There are obviously other examples of common element uh, features that only unit owners would see, for example, if there are balconies um, that only the owner has access to, that's gonna be something that you're going to see only if you're the unit uh, owner. Um, the unit doors, sometimes the mechanical systems or plumbing systems within the units, these are all examples of common elements uh, that only the unit owner may, may identify um, or, or may have access to. So they're the only ones who are going to identify if there's a problem with these, uh, these elements of the common elements. So if an owner does not complete a survey and later finds that they have a, the same problem that was identified by other owners on their surveys, and those surveys were submitted along with the performance audit to Tarion, often condominium corporations are going to get the response from Tarion that only uh, the defect, if there's a de if it's later proven that there's a warrantable defect um, disclosed by these unit surveys, so going back to the windows, we later prove to Tarion that there is a warrantable defect um, associated with the installation of the windows. Tarion will often say only the windows, only the defective windows in the specific units that identify uh, the problem in the unit surveys are going to be warranted. So let's say there's 150 unit surveys that are submitted along with the performance audit. That's a high number. I know most condominium corporations don't experience a high rate of return, but um, but for argument's sake, let's say there's 150 surveys that are submitted along with the performance audit, and there's maybe two or three of those that identify defects in the windows. So let's say it's leaks through the windows. Tarion will take the position, generally speaking, that the defect, the leaky windows, are only going to be warranted in the three locations um, in those three units where the owners identified the problem on the unit survey. Later on, the condominium corporation has the windows investigated and we find out it's a systemic issue. It exists, the defect exists almost throughout the entire building. Again, Tarion's going to deny, typically our experiences, that they will deny warranty coverage on all windows except for the three that were identified. Our, based on the case law, Tarion's position is not correct. So it's not a correct position in law. Generally speaking, um, uh, the, the decision maker in relation to, in, in the Tarion realm. So once you get past Tarion, if you disagree with their decision, you would appeal that to the License Appeal Tribunal. So the case law that we 
rely on co comes in large part from the tribunal. Sometimes it also comes from the divisional court, but to most of the case law that we rely on comes from the license appeal tribunal. And what the license appeal tribunal has said in these cases is that as long as the defect is identified and properly claimed within the warranty time frame that applies uh, in at least one location, if it's a common element defect, that that claim preserves the defect in all locations. There's a few things that, um, uh, based on the commentary that that the License Appeal Tribunal has provided in relation to these cases, there's a, th a few things to be mindful of. Um, one is that we you you will have to establish that the defect that has been identified throughout the building or at other locations that weren't necessarily reported as part of the performance audit, that it's the same defect that was reported in those unit surveys that were part of the performance audit. Um, often it's not the defect that gets reported, it's the symptoms, but the symptoms would all have to relate back to the defect that you later find exists. And the other thing that the tribunal has said is that it's important for condominium corporations to keep Tarion and the developer or the builder notified when you discover the same defect in other locations. So you've submitted the performance audit and then it comes to your attention that there's a number of other locations where you're experiencing the same problem. Make sure you're notifying Tarion and the developer um, where this is identified and give them an opportunity to come in and inspect. These are um, that sort of um, notice is going to be important if you later have to go to the license appeal tribunal to um, confirm your entitlement to coverage. Uh, but this is, I like this question because it does come up a lot. And for whatever reason, we see Tarion repeatedly taking the same position, which, as I said, is not correct in law. And so it's important that you're aware of this and that you know that you have rights with respect to systemic defects where you've reported the defect in at least one location as part of your performance audit or your second year claim or performance audit if you if you do that as well. That's it, Nancy. Thanks very much. I hate to say that's it on that question because, man, that's an important question. I think that might be one of the most important on questions we've heard in the past little while. So thank you, Christy. Really important. All right, folks, on that the note of importance, we, we're going to just remind everybody that if you missed something today, if, if you uh, had to step away from your computer for a few moments or if there's something you want to listen to again, we turn these sessions into podcasts. So stay tuned in 2023. Uh, you'll see our holiday Q&A turned into one of our next and upcoming podcasts. Also in 2023, we'll be continuing with our condo crunches. So watch your emails for the next date for our condo crunches. So for today's purposes, I just want to say thank you so much, everybody for attending. We hope that everybody has a fantastic holiday season. Be safe, be well, and I guess I can say we'll see you next year. Thanks so much. Take good care, everyone. Bye now. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.